Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today's guest is Aaron Thomas. Aaron is a 35-year-old second-year PhD student studying clinical psychology and behavioral neuroscience. Specifically, Aaron studies decision-making processes as it relates to addiction and impulsivity, or as Aaron likes to put it, a fancy term for studying how and why people make decisions. (laughs) Aaron was drawn to this field of work through his own personal experience with addiction and recovery, having gotten sober in 2010 at just 22 years of age. After living in Melbourne, Australia for four and a half years, Aaron returned to his homeland of the US where he continues to reside today. Now, the last time I saw Aaron was at an AA meeting before I got sober. So before I went to rehab, before I got sober, you can imagine things were quite different then. So I know that we're going to have a lot to talk about today. And with that, dialing in from the Pacific Northwest, I'd love to welcome Aaron onto the show. Aaron, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. I'm so excited to have this conversation. We were just chatting offline and it's been, yeah, five or six years since we saw each other in real life and gosh yeah. both of our lives have changed so much haven't they yeah yeah that was um that honestly it feels like another lifetime you know i look back and you i had i had been around for a while at that point but still things have changed a lot yeah yeah i'm really looking forward to finding out what's happened in those more recent years because your recovery story is really huge and we'll dive in we'll start from the beginning but really it's what you're doing with your life today that's that really fascinates me so i can't wait to get into that as well and i'm just for anybody that's listening i'm looking at aaron now and the the background the picture behind you is just like something out of a fairy tale it's so green so lush you're living on you said a, a bit of land at the moment with a dog yeah, we've got, we have like a acre and a half of land about 15 miles south of Portland. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, so it's like a small town living and, and uh, we've got this like cottage in the woods and the trees are about 75 feet tall and you know, it feels like wow. the, like enchanted rainforest or something, you know. Oh my gosh, that's so, so beautiful. Hey, Aaron, for our listeners to get to know you just a little bit better before we dive into the meat and bones of this interview, can we kick off with a couple of questions? I'd love to know, where did you grow up? What does an average day look like for you? And what do you do for fun? Yeah, so I grew up in Wisconsin, which is, um, I'm not sure, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how familiar Australians are with the state of Wisconsin. It's not New York or definitely heard of it (laughs) yeah yeah you've heard of it yeah it's in the middle of the country yeah i grew up in the midwest and a pretty small town it was like you know eight thousand people or something like that and wow um like fairly rural kind of small town conservative vibes and um 
I, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of alcoholism. It's where they make most of the American beer. So like, yeah. So like all the, you know, a lot of the big major beers that people drink in America and throughout the world are made in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. So I grew up there and, um, lots of drinking, you know, mm, lots of drinking. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say it must, it would be almost just like part of the culture there. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's part of the culture and, you know, it's like, I've, there's alcohol drinking drug use tends to find its way into the culture in some form or another. And in most major cities, you know, it's, it's, Mm. it has a way of wedging itself in there, you know, and um, it's important in different ways for different people. But where I'm from, you know, it was just, um, it's a small town. There's not going, there's not a lot going on. There's gigantic breweries in the middle of the city. So it all just smells like yeast all the time. (laughs) And um, so, I mean, it's literally like the center of the Midwestern universe is alcohol and drinking. And so, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm getting a picture. I'm getting a picture for sure. Tell me as a PhD student, what does an average day look like for you? Oh man. Um, It's funny. Yeah, I had a friend asking me about that this weekend. I got to work on my elevator pitch, what I actually <laughs> spend my time doing. It's a, yeah, but basically, um, yeah, an average day. You know, I'm a I'm doing a PhD in clinical psychology, but what's slightly abnormal about my appointment is I'm my research is in the Department of Behavioral Neuroscience. So. We have a clinical psychology program that's, you know, in psychiatry. And then you have behavioral neuroscience that is just its own thing, you know. And so I sort of, a lot of the other students, although there's not many of us, the other students sort of are squarely just in psychology, whereas I I sort of have to split my time between the two different departments. Um, There's because there's a lot of overlap between psychology and neuroscience. But, Mm -hmm. you know, a typical with the clinical psych PhD, your the idea is, you know, they want you to be this hybrid, uh, this perfect hybrid between a clinician and a scientist. Right. So that's I mean, it's literally called the scientist practitioner model is the model of, of the program. And so I basically spend, you know, I spend probably 40% of my time in this behavioral neuroscience lab dealing with mice, uh, rats. You know, we have this study going on right now where we're looking at the genetic heritability of of the trait of impulsivity, like how much is it heritable from parents, basically. Mm, mm. And so I spend a lot of time putting rats in operant conditioning chambers and all this sort of complicated stuff. I do a lot of stats and a lot of, um, yeah. So anyway, I, I spend I spend a fair bit of my time in a research lab, and then on Mondays and sometimes Tuesdays I do my clinical work. So I, that means I'm under the direct supervision of a clinical psychologist at the hospital, and I see patients. And so right mm-hmm. now I'm doing a lot of like exposure therapy, right? So for people with severe like agoraphobia and panic disorder and stuff, and then mm-hmm. um, and then and then coursework. Yeah. So then like a lot of coursework where I'm learning a lot of stats and, and stuff like that. So. Wow. Wow. Tell me, h- how long does a PhD take in this kind of field? Yeah. So I got lucky, you know, normally um, 
you know, the, the PhDs here are like jobs. So it's actually similar in Europe and Australia a little bit too. It's slightly different, but um, typically it takes like seven years for a clinical psychology PhD. I think the average is like 7.2 years or something. But I'm at, um, I was fortunate enough that I got admitted to what's essentially a medical school that happens to have a PhD in clinical psychology. And so because it's a medical school, we don't have any undergrads, which means that I don't have to do any tutoring and I don't have to do any t teaching assistant stuff. So I get to just focus on my studies. So for me, it's five years. So it's wow. four years of, yeah, it's four years of research, dissertation, blah, blah, blah. And then a year of like residency, like a clinical training that I go off to a hospital somewhere and I spend a year there. Yeah. Mm, my gosh. <laughs> I, I know we're going to share with our audience who are listening here today where you came from. I, I already know a little bit of your story and just to see what you've just shared with me and what you're doing in your life today compared to where you came from and the struggles that you faced and the adversity, like it, it just blows my mind. So everyone that's listening right now, hold on to your hats because this is an <laughs> epic story. Now tell yeah. me, what do you what do you do for fun, Aaron? Because that sounds like a, a lot, a lot of mental stimulation and yeah. what do you do to release that? Yeah, I mean, I... I did a lot more fun stuff before I started my PhD. <laughs> so like, <laughs> but now I, you know, I'm like redlining my brain all, all day, every day, but yeah, I, a skateboarder, um, I've been a skateboarder my whole life. And, um, yeah. So like when, like, for example, you know, when COVID hit, like when we were in the middle of in, you know, we were, I was in a different city, but when COVID hit, all I did was skateboard. I mean, that was the only thing you could do, you know? So mm. yeah, I skateboard, I snowboard. Uh, I spend a lot of time with my dog and my girlfriend and, and, um, yeah, I like to read. I do CrossFit, you know, I, I don't know. I'm one of the annoying CrossFitter people that likes to talk about it all the time. <laughs> you know? So, That's great. That's great. I love yeah. that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for giving us a little bit of insight into your life. So let's dive a little deeper now. Aaron, I've asked you to bring in a photo today. Now, this photo is from a time in your life where you are hiding behind a smile. So you were presenting one version of yourself to the outside world, but that didn't match up with the reality of what was going on internally for you. Could you yeah. please describe for our listeners, what am I looking at with this photo and what was going on for you at that specific time in your life? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> that photo is funny. You know, I'm looking like pretty despondent, uh, like sort of like staring off into the distance. And it was a night of like heavy drinking and, and drug use and stuff. And what was, you know, I definitely was trying to portray to everybody that I was fine. So I'm probably like, I don't know, I'm probably like 21 or something in that photo. And I was like, definitely trying to portray to everybody that I was fine. And the only problem with that was like, you know, absolutely nobody was convinced by it right because like everybody you know what i mean yeah it's like it's as corny as like the only person i was fooling was literally myself you know mm. everybody mm. everybody knew i had a problem everybody was worried about me you know my, my family and, and partners and friends are sort of like following me around you know checking my pulse you know making sure i'm still breathing all the time like um yeah it was it was um I had been going pretty strong, you know, since I was about 15, you know, with, with drinking and, and using drugs and stuff. And so, 
by the time I was 22 or 21 or whatever, when that, when that photo was taken, I was exhausted in, Mm. in the sense of like, I, in, especially in those later years, I was sort of carrying around this and, and this was pretty repressed, right? Like I consciously at the time, I probably wouldn't have been able to articulate it to you, but I was carrying a deep sense of almost like existential guilt where mm. I felt like I was, um, I was so clearly not living up to what I thought I could be in my heart, you know? So, um, Like, you know, whoever this person is that I am now, where by certain metrics, I'm doing pretty good or I've I've gotten pretty far. This guy that I am now was in there and Mm -hmm. wanting to be able to see the light of day, basically. And um, so, yeah, I, so I felt a lot of shame and it was really repressed and I wasn't able to talk about it. I didn't have any words for it. And, you know, I just, um, and I think, you know, the, the, the last thing I would say, um, sorry, I, I like to ramble. Um, <laughs> the, the last thing I would say is I, you know, I was 21 or 22 and I f- truly felt like I was a, just an unsupervised 11 year old, you know? I mean, that's how I felt. Mm. It's like, it's like those old skits from back in the day where the, the, the 12 year old kid puts on his dad's clothes for a job interview and the clothes are all baggy and don't fit mm. and they're huge. And it's like this comedic scene, you know? And, and um, yeah, I felt like that. I felt like a little kid for sure. Trying to pretend that I was, I was an adult. Mm. Yeah. That sounds like it would have been really, really uncomfortable and really lonely at times having that shame and uh, that existential guilt that you describe can you take me back to so you mentioned the age 15 where you started drinking and using yeah what what was it that led to that because you know we all start experimenting but I suppose the difference between those of us that then have this progression where it, it becomes something we no longer can manage or control versus somebody who maybe smokes a joint or tries a beer and goes, yeah, that was okay. I'm going to leave it. What was going on for you mentally, emotionally, spiritually at that time that led to this progression? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, sorry, these, can you hear that? That's fine. It creates, you're calling in from your home. We're good. (laughs) We've got a, we've got an ambiance. All right, cool. Um, Yeah. So, Honestly, at the time, yeah, so I was probably like 14 or 15. I don't know. All I remember from that time period was, uh, so I grew up with a lot of drinking and um, like mental health problems in my family. And Mm. I grew up, um, I I was scared of other people's drinking and but I was also, not only was I scared of other people's drinking, but I was scared for other people's safety as a result of their drinking, you know? So I'm a little kid, you know, seven, eight, nine. And I'm like watching these people in my life drink and drink, you know, mostly irresponsibly and stuff. And I just was um, always afraid that they were going to get hurt. So there's just that thing of, um, the, the kid shouldn't be feeling like the adults need 
to be cared for. It should be the other way around, you know? Um, yeah. so by the, so, so by the time that, um, I got to the age of people sort of like smoking pot and, and drinking and stuff, I didn't want to do it. I was like mm. vehemently against it actually. And I remember, you know, my, my first buddy, like, smoked pot at a football game or something and i was like you know you're a traitor How yeah could you, you do- lose <laughs> yeah what a what a loser you're gonna be you know and um yeah i don't know i probably held out on that for like five minutes and then uh and then yeah i i got drunk for the first time and um i was a pretty neurotic kid and a pretty i didn't really have a lot of self-esteem and um i was a really sensitive kid too you know really sensitive, easy to cry, easy to offend, whatever. And, um, and then when I got drunk for the first time, man, you know, the lights came on, you know, I mean, Mm. I'll never forget it as long as I live, you know, it's like alcohol. I have some intrinsic, like biological programming in my hardware that prepares me to receive alcohol, you know? And so when I receive alcohol, I receive it a lot differently from other people. And it feels like a, just like, you know, just the missing puzzle piece of my mind. And all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm smarter, I'm funnier, I'm taller. Uh, I'm a better dancer. Uh, you know, I, I don't feel fear, you know, so it, uh, that, so anyway, yeah. When I first used alcohol in particular, it, um, it raised, it raised my floor for how, neurotic and insecure I was and it made me feel just like this 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 base level anxiety ambient level anxiety sort of went away and I I started to feel a lot more confident yeah yeah you touch on something that really blew my mind I didn't realize this until I got sober that when I drink alcohol the effect that it has on me is very very different from people who don't have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, yeah. whether you identify as being an alcoholic or not. Yeah. I didn't realize that most people have one or two drinks, any moderate temperate drinker, they'll have one or two drinks and then they'll think, okay, that's enough for me. Like I've got a bit of a buzz. I'm feeling good. Anything else is going to start to make me feel tired or out of control. So I'm going to stop. Like I'm the opposite. I have one or two and my brain goes, all right, game on, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. No, it's, it's unbelievable. And then, you know, when you get sober and you've been sober for a while and you then meet those people that can drink normally, it's a, it's like, it's like, like literally meeting a Martian, you know, you're like, like, I have, like, I have never related to anything less in my life. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I don't understand. It's so funny you say that. I remember one time I was in, um, I was in the eastern suburbs. I was in like Malvern East or something. I can't remember. But I was like, I was walking down the street and I had been sober for a long time. And I was like, I like walked past this pizza place and I was doing fine. You know, I, I wasn't, this was, isn't like a story of like, oh, I almost drank or anything. Like it was just one of those moments where you sort of have like what this realization, like what you're talking about. Walking down, leaving the gym, walking down the sidewalk, there's a pizza place. You know, they have the, caf- the cafe tables on the sidewalk. And some, there was like a half eaten pizza and like three glasses of wine that were all half drunk, (laughs) half full. And no one was sitting at the table and the check had been paid. And what that meant was that those three people 
were so profoundly disinterested in finishing the alcohol in front of them that they just went home. You know what I mean? It's like unbelievable. Yes. And I was like eight years sober and I was walking down and I was like, holy crap, dude. I, I will I never understand that. Yeah. 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 It's <laughs> unreal. Yeah. I totally relate. I totally relate to that, Aaron. Hey, tell me, what about drugs? You said that alcohol really did it for you. When did drugs start to become a part of your story and how did that progression manifest within you? Yeah. I mean, I think, oh man, I, I, uh, I think, you know, the first drugs I ever took were from a doctor mm. in my life. So, you know, I'm 35, right? So probably like 1998, I'm 10 years old and I am experienced, you know, I'm basically, by the time I'm 10 or 11, I'm not drinking, I'm not using drugs at all, but it's clear to everybody in my life, my family, whatever, that there's something pretty profoundly wrong with me. And I'm getting, I'm like having a lot of trouble at school. I'm just having emotional problems. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm depressed. I was just like this really, uh, just a sad little kid, you know? And, um, I, yeah. So I went to the doctor and this was like right at the beginning of, uh, right at the beginning of the, the, the ADHD, uh, boom, right? Like mm -hmm. right when we started sort of conceptualizing that. And, um, so yeah, I took Adderall for the first time when I was like 11 or 12 and, um, man, you know, I just, I don't know, man. I don't know how much I should speak on that. It's kind of a controversial issue, but I was very, By very all means, high. go for it. Mm. Yeah. So, okay. Mm. So, so look, if I'm speaking honestly, I think, you know, especially now as a clinical psychologist trainee, um, there was very little concern or attention to the, the, um, the, the actual circumstances of my life. Right. It was just sort of this problematizing uh, or sort of like pathologizing the symptoms of what I was showing to people. Oh, this kid's like sad. And it's like it's basically like this kid is not able to pay attention to his long division right now. Right. Like he's not he's not sitting in math class properly. He's squirmy. He wants to cry. He wants to leave. Whatever. You know what this kid needs? He needs 30 milligrams of extended release government uh, grade uh, uh, amphetamine. That's what this kid needs. You know what I mean? And, mm. and I'm sure it, it works for a lot of people and it's a good thing for a lot of people. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not like shitting on that in general. I'm just saying like for me at 11 years old, I wish somebody had just said like, are, are you okay, man? Like, mm. are you, are you okay? And nobody asked me that. They just gave me pills. <laughs> You know, do you think like therapy would have been a better alternative in that time? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that therapy wasn't going therapy wouldn't have neutralized the fact that I have a biological predisposition towards alcoholism. Right. Mm. Like therapy mm. wouldn't have neutralized that and, and taken that out of my DNA. I might have pro I probably would have still ended up, I don't know, having some run in with substances. Um, I'm just saying like, it's, um, it didn't help and it made things worse and it was sort of, um, it, it was like a, it was like sort of fast tracked me to, holy crap, if I put certain things in my body, 
it really, really changes the way that I feel and enables me to, to do things that I, I thought I, I couldn't do otherwise, you know? Mm, mm. So that was, that happened at around 11 years of age. And then we fast forward to 22 and you've overdosed. Was yeah. that on heroin? It was actually on um, Oxycontin. Yeah. Okay. Okay. How, t talk me through from, from, from 11 to 22, what happened there? Um, so basically like, all right. So at 11, I'm prescribed amphetamines and then, um, I'm like noticing, you know, how that's making me feel. And I, you know, I'm really, really high, you know, it's, it's just unbelievable. And I was so high, but then eventually a couple of years go by and I start mixing alcohol and marijuana and like other drugs with Adderall first thing in the morning. So like, you know, I remember, for example, um, I don't know, I started smoking weed probably around like 14 or 15 when I started smoking yeah. pot. And I remember um, the first time, you know, I don't know how y'all do it over there, but like a lot of like kids like me, we would wake up at like 7 a.m., meet up with our friends and drive around in the country and smoke as much weed as we could, you know, before we went to, to high school or middle school or whatever. And I remember the first time that I woke up and and mixed those two substances. Excuse me. Oh, wow. And so it was like the first time that I felt the effects of two substances coming to So it's like you have the the you know, like the laugh attacks or whatever of marijuana and like, whatever you're feeling kind of goofy. And then you have like the hyper focus and confidence of the amphetamines and feeling that it's like, Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to go ahead and do this every mm -hmm. single day for the rest of our lives. And that's like, one of the things is like, so what I learned and then what made up those next couple of years was like, I basically had this experience of like, like, you know, Clark Kent, walks into the phone booth and he comes out and he's, he's Superman. Right. And what, so like for me, I can't imagine having access to a power like that and not walking into the phone booth every day. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. like I can't, mm -hmm. I can't imagine there's a phone booth on every, on every street corner. I'm like, no, I'm not interested in today. I just want to be Clark Kent today. You know what I mean? And so for me, it was like, that's was how my drug use and my drinking went. It's like, okay, I'm going to wake up every day and I'm going to choose between being neurotic, scared, low self-esteem. I don't know how to be a man. I don't even know what being a man means. I know how to be toxic and misogynistic and whatever, whatever. Um, I don't know how to do any of this, but if I take this substance or I drink this liquid, all of a sudden I know exactly what to do. I know exactly what to say. And I don't, I also don't have to feel any of the things that I'm feeling. And so, uh, yeah, so all that goes on for years and years and, you know, and I start getting into all kinds of trouble and I got kicked out of college. Like I tried to go to, I tried to go to university twice actually before I got sober and I flunked out, you know, I flunked out mm -hmm. of college. I could not do it. Right. And then, um, yeah. And then when I was like 18, um, I discovered opiates and that was like, you know, 
that was like another, like by the time I was 18, I was drinking daily. I moved out of my parents' house when I was in high school somehow. I don't know. I was like living with these older people. So I was like living at this house, but I was like supposed to be going to high school and I didn't go. And so like, you know, I graduated high school with like a 1.3 GPA, which for Australians is like a D minus average. It's like really not good. And um, yeah, so then I discovered opiates when I was 18. And the opiates, I remember this. This is how opiates affected me. I remember um, during that period of my life, I just like hated my family, right? It was just funny because I'm really close to my family now and they haven't changed mm. that much. And all of a sudden they're not evil anymore. It's like, well, but I like hated my family and I felt so oppressed by my family. And the first time I got, ki- like I got kidney stones, I think from my drinking and the doctors mm. gave me all of this Oxycontin. And so I took it for the first time and drank a bunch of alcohol with it. And so the first time that I, I felt the Oxycontin was in my mom's basement. And I hated her at the time. We just did not get along. The Oxycontin starts hitting my system. And I get, of course, you know, I get really high, which is opiates is its own high. I start getting high and I think to myself, I really want to go upstairs and just chat with my mom. I just want to go upstairs and connect with my mom. Right. Mm -hmm. All Mm -hmm. of a sudden I like melt into this feeling of love, interest, compassion. And because it's the first time. So it's like this, it's like this mystical experience. It's like, Oh, I want to connect with somebody right now. So I go upstairs and I go and talk to my mom and we went shopping and had a wonderful afternoon she probably couldn't believe it she's like what the hell is going on with this guy you know so so anyway that's when i found opiates and then eventually the i just started running the streets and doing it sort of became a criminal over the years and then eventually i just took too much (laughs) whoops one night and ended up in the er yeah it seems to be quite rapid the hold that it takes on you when other people that i've had on the show yeah. Who who have started taking oxy it's I mean you, it, this can happen with any addictive substance but in particular sure. yeah and 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 what it drives you to do and the lengths that you're willing to go to to get more yeah seems really quite intense. So yeah. you you've you've taken too much you've ended up in the ER you're 22 years old and then you had you were you admitted to a psych ward? Was there a psych yeah. stay somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> What yeah, happened there? Yeah. Yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. It's funny. You know, it was like, it was like such a nightmare at the time. And now it's like the funniest part, you know, like dinner story that I have, you know, it's like hilarious now, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I can't. So like, it's, it, it's a little weird. It's like, I took too much stuff that night. To the point where I wasn't like breathing by the time I got to the ER and in the state of Wisconsin at the time, they had this thing where I don't know exactly how it works, but it's like, if you have X amount of some insane amount of drugs in your system, what they do is they can 5150 you, which means that it's a, it's a involuntary psychiatric hold because legally that amount of drugs is interpreted as a suicide attempt ah okay do you see what i'm saying so it's like yeah it makes perfect sense yeah so it's like it's not 
actually a suicide attempt. I was just trying to have a good time, you know, but to them, they're like, dude, this is insane. Like we have to hold you. And so then, um, yeah, I was in a psychiatric unit for like 10 days or something like that. Yeah. Do you remember much from that experience? I, yeah, I mean, (laughs) I remember, uh, uh, I was so, I was just interminable. I, I just, I brought my guitar into the psychiatric unit. I'm like that guy. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like bring my guitar to the psych unit and play bony bear songs for the other women that are in the psychiatric unit and like get a girlfriend. You know what I mean? Go find yourself a wife. Yeah. Unbelievable. You know? And so I remember I had, I had this, I brought my guitar cause I'm just a nightmare. And, um, and this dude that I was in the psychiatric unit with, with was, uh, a, a truly a savant, like, like a genius, like a neurological anomaly level genius guy. And he takes my guitar and he turns it upside down so that it's like sitting on his lap and he could play the guitar by just tapping on it and plucking the strings like this. So instead of like this, you're, you're going like this. Oh, wow. This guy's like a genius and he's a alcoholic and he's like dying from alcoholism. And I'm like, man, this is what the hell am I doing, dude? Like, yeah. So Mm. I, I was in there with eating jello and yeah. I don't know. I, I imagine that would have been one of your first, insights into just how this disease doesn't discriminate yeah yeah i mean to be honest with you like it the lights didn't come on yet seriously Mm. like i i i overdosed and i wake up so before i was in the psych unit i was in the er for like three days or something and so i literally came to in the er and I'm convulsing because apparently when they hit you with the naloxone shot, mm-hmm. if you have a bunch of stuff in your system and they hit you with a shot, I don't know. I was like convulsing from the, cause I came to because of the naloxone shot or whatever. I think that's what it's called. And I like rocketed back to consciousness and my parents are like at the foot of my bed and they're, you know, they're crying and they're sobbing and, you know, my mom is like completely beside herself and whatever. Mm-hmm. And they, I wake up and the first thing that they said to me was, um, Aaron, I, we think that you have a serious drug problem and that you, you need to, to go get help. And I like, you know, I'm shaking and stuff. It's so dramatic. And I was like shaking and stuff. And I was like, I said, uh, verbatim, my mom will tell you this. I said, I said, don't you think that's overkill? <laughs> It's like unbelievable, dude. Unbelievable, you know? I'm just like, like, literally my first reaction coming back to consciousness, my respiratory system is coming back online. They're like, dude, you need some help. And I'm like, I don't, dude, you're, this is like dramatic. Shut, like this, go away, you know? Stop overreacting. Oh my God. So it it wasn't really until I went to treatment, you know, because then they sent me to treatment and then I started you know, it's the lights started to come on. Be, we just, you know, good counselors and good group, 
meetings and stuff and hearing other mm-hmm. people's stories. And, and, um, that's, it wasn't, I got the treatment and then I started, the light started to come on. I was like, Oh man, like maybe, I'm, maybe I really have a problem. I need to do something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk to me about that? Cause you did long-term, didn't you? Long-term treatment. Yeah. So I was really fortunate. Um, I got to have a very weird experience, um, very unique experience that probably wouldn't fly in 2023. Um, yeah, like I went to this like sober. So this is in Wisconsin, and then they shipped me off to a six month um, like sober. It's not like it's not just like a sober. It's like I guess they called it a recovery house. Mm-hmm. And there was this, there was this dude that this, just this guy who's just a sailor and he's been sober for like 30 years and he just built a house in the middle of Arizona that, and basically he didn't make any money like whatsoever on it. He just built mm-hmm. this house and he called it a recovery house. He called it new freedom was the name of the, was the name of the house. And you was like, it was like six or seven dudes at a time. And he basically said, you can live here. And uh, your parents are not allowed to pay your rent. You have to do every single thing that we say. And if you don't take suggestions and you, and you, um, you, you don't take suggestions, you don't want to do what we say, then you will leave immediately because there's somebody else who wants the bed more than you. And, mm-hmm. um, and you have 30 days to get a job. If you don't get a job, you're out. And the moment that you get a job, you're going to start paying rent and you're all going to hold each other accountable. And we, so it was like crazy. It was like, we had to be out of the house from 7am to 4pm. We weren't allowed to watch TV. We weren't allowed to have cars. We weren't allowed to have cell phones. We weren't allowed to go on social media. And the only thing that we were, yeah, dude, it was crazy. And the only thing we were allowed to do for six months was go to meetings. And, um, that was it. I mean, we, we weren't allowed to interact with the outside world really aside from the recovery community. And so I did that for six months. It changed my life. It was the it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Wow, that just sounds amazing. Aaron, you talk about the lights coming on and I fully know what you mean because I've had yeah. that same experience and it was when I was in rehab. But for somebody who's listening who may not know what we mean by that. Can you describe for me what were some of the aha moments, those yeah. realizations that really s- flipped the switch in your mind to you thinking, I'm never going, I'm, I'm abstinent now. Like it's, this isn't a, I'm going to go back and learn yeah. how to moderate my drinking. Like I'm done. It's over. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. So like there's just this, um, the first couple of, times that the lights really came on it was this experience of when you come up against i'll speak for myself when i come up against abject failure futility hopelessness for so many years coming up against that hopelessness of everyday living in in, in alcoholic life it it it's it's devastating because I know that I have to do it again tomorrow and it will be as hopeless as it was tomorrow. But mm-hmm. eventually, and so that, you know, you just think about that for, you're like, Oh my God, dude, I'm living in hell for the rest of my life. But then when I got to treatment, there was this moment where I was just like, 
I was like, I am completely cornered. I have failed because I had tried to get sober so many times on my own. It wasn't just straight drug use for years and years. It was like drug use, drug use, try to get sober, fail, relapse. But I did it for years, you know. And so I had this moment in rehab where I was, I remember people were going around and I had been telling them for like a week or so that I don't think that I have, I don't think I have alcoholism. I think that um, my girlfriend is mean and, um, and Wisconsin sucks, you know, and um, I don't know, dude, like I just need to not do opiates. I, I can drink, but I just need it, whatever. And I just had this moment where I suddenly was listening to everybody going around the table who all weren't really having a problem admitting that they had a problem and listening to them. And just, it was just like this, this chink in my armor suddenly where I was like, I just suddenly w- was able to stop stiff arming everybody and admit to myself, like, man, I, I think I'm like really one of these people and i think i'm sick like i think i'm ill you know like mm. there's a difference between i'm like an asshole and i'm ill you know and that's when oh, i started yeah. realizing you know what i mean like you realize yeah. that you're ill and your body is sick you know like you're literally detoxing and shaking and stuff and um so yeah so that was a big moment for me was basically realizing i'm I am neurologically ill. There's something wrong with me. Um, yeah. I, I, when I remember hearing the line, we're not bad people, we're sick people. And that was mm. huge for me because when I was able to stop, because nobody thought I was a bigger piece of shit than myself when sure. I continued yeah. to lie to myself, drink when I didn't want to drink, call people at all hours of the night, say embarrassing shit, Mm. steal microphones at weddings. Like all of that stuff was just like eroding my self-esteem one day at a time. Yeah. And so when all of a sudden it was like, well, hang on a minute, this isn't something that you're consciously choosing to do. Like you actually don't, you think you have a choice to drink every day? You don't. Like this is happening whether you want to or not. It's not that uh, the sense of responsibility was handed over. I knew the responsibility and the onus and the decision sure. to get well landed on me, but it was like I was in that moment, I was able to stop beating myself with that stick. Yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it's like, so, like, I think I knew on some level that I had a disease. Um, but what really takes the, the, the moral implications off of, my shoulders is like a dude sat me down and explained to me what alcoholism was for the first time in my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Excuse me. I, I thought I was a schmuck. I just thought there, I just thought it was a schmuck. I just thought there was like something wrong with me, you know? And then a dude sat me down. I remember he said, um, he goes, have you ever met somebody that's like profoundly allergic to peanuts? And I was like, yeah, man. They're like, I mean, they, they like smell a peanut and they just like die. It's crazy. He's like, yeah, they're like super allergic to peanuts. Right. And he's like, I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah. Um, is that because they're weak? Like if that person eats a peanut and as the peanut is going down their throat and they, they swallow the peanut and they go, no, I'm, 
I'm not going to get sick. I'm not going to have anaphylactic shock. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. If we were to look at that, we'd be like, dude, it's not up to you. If you put Mm. the peanut in your mouth, it's over, dude. You were born with that. You can't escape it. There's you have the only thing that you have responsibility over is whether or not you put a peanut in your mouth today, you know, Mm. and that's true when you're five years old and it's true when you're 55 years old, right? Without some new technological advance and like medical intervention that we don't have yet, it's over, dude. And so that like this idea of like a peanut allergy and thinking, imagine if you saw somebody try to talk themselves into being able to successfully have a Reese's tonight. You know what I mean? He's like, dude. It's insanity. Yeah. It's not up to you, man. It's really not, Mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I freaking love that analogy. Like it just makes so, so much sense. And I hope that the audience can really start to understand that that's what we're talking about when we're talking about alcoholism. Yeah. It's the effect that it has and how different that is from your normal everyday drinker. Yeah. Okay, Aaron. So you get into this sober living, you're 22 years old, you're doing meetings, you're in the middle, and then your life starts to blossom and grow. Tell me yeah. what what made you want to pick up everything and move to Australia? I, you know, I actually, uh, you know, I've been talking a lot about this in therapy, you know, not, not like what, you know, not like what made me pick up and move to Australia, but like, you know, I spent a lot of time living as a criminal and, uh, or just, I, 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 for me, I've like reclaimed the word junkie for myself. You know what I mean? Like, I know that like other people, like, so there's a social stigma to that. But for me, I feel like a sense of like, sort of almost like pride. Like I'm it's like, means like I lived yes. as a junkie, a junkie for a really long time. And I know what it's like to live like a junkie and be dope sick and, and be skinny and, and, and just be puking. Like, I know what it's like to live that way. And so I lived that way for a really long time. But the entire time that I was living that way, there was this voice inside my head. I, like, I remember one time. This is where this is related. I was dope sick. I was so sick. And it's like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm in a fucking Little Caesars parking lot. I don't even know if you guys have Little Caesars. It's like a pizza place. It's, it's yeah, not yeah. great. It's not great. Like Pizza Hut. <laughs> yeah, but like way worse. Yeah. And so I'm, like, I'm in a Little Caesars parking lot. It's 11 o'clock at night. I've been dope sick all day. And I feel like I'm going to puke. And I remember just sitting there, like listening to the radio and just think, and I just had this like brief moment of self-awareness where I was like, man, like, like, like it makes me emotional. It's like this voice was like, you're so much better than this. Mm. And I, and it hit me so hard, like this thing of like, this isn't you. And I drank for two more years after hearing that Mm. with like live. And that's what I meant before when I said this guilt of like, I owe something. I was born with innate talents and abilities and gifts. And I'm in a gas station bathroom, putting dirty stuff up my nose every day of my life. And so, so anyway, what that, 
how that relates to your question is I carried that existential guilt for a long time. Like I owe something to whoever, whatever my creator is that put me here. I owe something to that to make this time and these opportunities that have worth it. And so when I got sober and my life instantly was beautiful, it's like everything was good. As soon as I got into a, you know, a 12 step program and I, I started doing that stuff, um, everything started to work out. And so all of a sudden I'm one, two, three years sober. And I'm like, what can I do to absolutely squeeze every bit of juice that I can out of this life to make sure that when I'm on my deathbed, I will be like, I did all of it, dude. I did everything. I didn't leave anything on the table. And so, yeah, so then I, for some reason that was Australia. I, don't, I have no idea why. I don't know. It was just like, I was like, it's really far away. It's like something most people don't do. I'm going to do it. So I sold all my shit. I broke up with my girlfriend. I sold my truck. I, I adopted my dogs out and I applied. You know what actually happened? This is interesting. I applied. I, was, I wanted to go to UQ and I got accepted to UQ in Queensland and I was all set to go. And then a friend of a friend of a friend who knew people in recovery in Melbourne hooked me up with some dudes in Melbourne and they happened to be in Phoenix one weekend. And I went and I hung out with them and they were adamantly convinced me to not go to Sydney, to not go to Queensland and to go to Melbourne because it was the best city in the country. And they convinced (laughs) me. And then I, I applied to La Trobe and I got in and I flew out and then they picked me up from the airport. Wow, that's a god job <laughs> if I ever heard one. Yeah, yeah. That's unreal. So yeah. hang on a minute. So you've gone from being somebody who could barely study, mm. barely made it through high school, dropped out of two different universities to all yeah. of a sudden being accepted to study your master's overseas. It was actually my How- bachelor's first. First it was my bachelor's. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So hang on a minute. How did you how did you manage all of that? Because that would have been so overwhelming. Well, I mean, I started at community college when I was in Arizona, and so I like had to teach myself how to study. I mean, I could talk about that. I mean, that's a whole other story. But basically, I had to. I decided never been to school really. You know, mm. I didn't even do high school. And so I didn't know, but like, I love to read and I don't know, I got, somebody gave me a neuroscience book and I read it and it blew my mind and whatever. And so, um, yeah, I had to teach myself how to study. And then eventually I got enough credits under my belt that us, these schools in Australia would take me. And, um, and how did I manage it? You know, honestly, I didn't at first, you know, mm. I, mm. I was the, from 2014 to 2016, it was the most profoundly mentally ill I've ever been in my life. I was having panic attacks, which I had never had before. Really, I had I had had maybe a couple, but um, but when I was doing my bachelor's, and I was living in uh, Richmond. I was living in Richmond for a while, and I'm doing my bachelor's, and I don't have money. My family, I don't come from money. So I was having to work like full time as a disability worker uh, while going to school full time. I started having panic attacks, man. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. panic attacks to the point where I you, like, you know, in Richmond, Swan Street, there's a Coles mm-hmm. right there. I was literally, yeah. I was in the Coles on Swan Street looking at peanut butter, trying to pick out what kind of peanut butter I had. And I lost consciousness. And I people say tunnel vision, like in movies, they're like, oh, he had, t-. no, I literally like, I was like seeing through a tunnel and all of a sudden I saw hard. If, if you've had a panic attack, if anybody listening has had a panic, they know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I had an unbelievably dramatic panic attack in the coals on Swan street. And I walked out onto the sidewalk and laid down on the sidewalk in front of all the people walking past and called the ambulance because I was wow. so convinced I was dying. And they came and picked me up and I just cried into the, the, the lady's arms. And she was like, Oh honey, this is a panic attack. You're not dying. Oh, wow. I was like, Holy shit. Okay. Can you take me home? And she's like, yeah, honey, I'll take you. Home. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I didn't <sighs> at first. And so, but eventually I had to learn how to meditate. Meditation probably saved my life really during mm. that period i meditation saved my life and i got i the i the way i had to combat that stuff was i had like there's there's no drugs that were going to fix that that i was willing to take there's no book i could read that's going to fix that no girl no job that anything that's going to fix that and so the only pathway that i had when my mental health was like spiraling was like i had to find a a deeper spiritual solution at the time and like, mm. that's what I did. And I also leaned on my friends and recovery programs too, you know? Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that story, Aaron. Cause I think it is really important for people who've got longer term sobriety to talk openly and honestly about the fact that, that it isn't always going to be smooth sailing. And at the end of the day, as long as you have in your mind that the option of picking up a drink is not, that's, that's not an option yeah. that's off the table you know, try anything else, but as long as you keep putting your sobriety first, then you, you will move through it. Yeah, no, totally. And I, and I wish that I'm like really passionate now. Like I just, Friday was 13 years. And oh my gosh. Happy yeah, birthday. Yeah, awesome. yeah. It was on, it was on Friday and I actually spent it. It was weird. My buddy I got sober with was his bachelor party. So we had a sober <laughs> bachelor party, but, um, Amazing. but I remember but like year seven, when I was seven or eight years sober or something like that, I was, you know, I was in Melbourne. Easily the worst year of my life. But I did this wow. thing. But see, here, I want to share this because I think nobody told this to me when I was going through this. And I wish that I had heard it somewhere. Mm. I'm seven years, eight years sober. And I am Captain AA, right? There's people listening that knows what I'm talking about, right? people in Melbourne, right? And I'm like captain recovery, right? And I'm going to I'm like going to these meetings and I'm like waiting to get to a point in the book so that I can tell everybody how spiritual I am and how much I understand what this book says or that book says. And I was inside, I was completely falling apart and I was 7 years sober. I had so much therapy that like outside work that I needed to do about my family of origin, about women, about, you know, like weird, like problematic relationships, like with like 
sex, intimacy, love, attachment, like all these things that I just had never worked at, you know, I'm almost 30 at this point or whatever. And um, I'm going to recovery groups, trying to bowl over the problems that I'm having in my real life with just going to public forums and trying to sound as spiritual as I can so that everybody thinks that I'm okay. And Mm -hmm. I had no capacity at the time to show up and be like, hey, I have X amount of years sober and I am absolutely falling apart. Somebody please help me. You know, Mm -hmm. I had no ability Mm -hmm. to do that at the time. And um, yeah, so I just, I want to say that because that, that my inability to show up authentically as somebody who's in recovery, but not doing okay, my inability to show up and say, hey, yo, guys, I'm super not okay right now. And I know that we're supposed to read this book, but like I'm falling apart and I need help. My inability to do that made my life so much worse and so much smaller and so much darker. And I've suffered greatly as a result of not being able to like get honest with people with many, many years of sobriety and sounding great from the floor. You know what I mean? Mm, mm, mm. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because there are people out there who probably have the notion that when you're really stuck, you just need to do more. Yeah. And yeah. and I I know that that doesn't work. And like you just said, outside help is so, so important to address yeah. those different issues, to be able to lean into that. And what you just said about being able to share openly and honestly from the floor as well, I think is important. It's something that my sponsor has really shown me in the way that she shares is that she shares currently exactly how she is. And she does that Mm. to let people with less time know that it's okay and and know what the reality of a life sober is because it's not always easy. In fact, it can be really, really challenging at times. Life can be really spiky, like there's sharp edges and we want to numb them somehow. But you know, we don't really get to do that in recovery or, or a life in sobriety. We have to learn how to how to live and feel and experience everything stone cold sober. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I was like, totally like what you're saying, your sponsor does. Like I would go to these places and I would see dudes with, I don't know, like literally been sober longer than I've been alive. And it was like, it was maybe, I, maybe I just wasn't ready to hear. I, I don't know. But what I recall hearing is like, Hey, my name's Joe. I've been sober for 36 years. And uh, I haven't had a problem in about two decades. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, hey, yeah, for guys, sure. It's, it's yeah. out there. Yeah. Say your prayers and, and uh, meditate before bed and, and uh, you're going to make a million bucks and it's just going to be great. And I was like, dude, like that is, that is not my experience right now. You know, like I really, I need help. And so, yeah, when I was able to finally ask for help, I've heard it referred to me and talk about this a lot where um we we would always talk about this idea of like the second surrender there's a first surrender when you come in and you're like dude i think i have alcoholism and i think that i am smoked i don't think there's anything it's over dude and you sort of surrender to that and there's a real catharsis in that and then there's this this thing of like they call it like the seven year itch right Mm. or this or the second surrender And it's this idea of like, okay, I surrendered alcohol and drugs and everything got actually way better. But now here I am seven years later 
And there's invariably, there's going to be something that I'm failing to surrender that I'm holding on to. For me, a lot of it had to do with like attachment issues that I had and like intimacy issues that I had that really needed to be worked out in, in therapy and inventory wasn't going to do that for me. And so I had to get outside help and then I was like, Oh my God, I can let this go. And then, yeah, mm. that was like, that was like five, six years ago now. And, and it was the impact of that seven year surrender of what, of coming up in long-term sobriety and be like, okay, I have to get rid of this. The impact of my surrender to that was almost as profound as my first surrender of coming off drugs and alcohol. That's how much of a change there's been in my life in the last six years. So I just want to say that for anybody that's listening. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing that. That's really powerful. And I hope that it gives hope to anybody listening who might be safe, four, five, six years down the line and, and they're struggling too. Hey, Aaron, in your studies and what you're currently focusing on now, tell me, what have you learned so far about addicts and their decision-making? Yeah. Um, so I'm just finishing up my first year, so I'm, I'm not going to be able to give a ex extremely satisfactory behavioral <laughs> neuroscience answer to, you know, what is addiction, you know, I, you know. But um, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, but I think yeah, I think what I've learned, um, I've learned a couple of things. I mean, look, in, in my lab, we do a lot of behavioral genetics research. And um, um, the, one, the one thing I've learned is how, how heritable the disease actually is, and not just how heritable the disease itself is, because like, there are certain genes that you get, obviously, from your your lineage, there are certain genes that you get from your mom and dad that are pretty obviously implicated in having the disease of alcoholism, right? And what are some of those? Because I hear so there are there is a big collection of people out there who just yeah. vehemently deny that alcoholism is a disease. Oh, they'd be yeah. I mean, they'd be they'd be wrong. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a genetic mutation. I mean, there there's there are certain genes that are implicated and then there's certain gene mutations that are implicated and you know genetics oftentimes isn't the cleanest thing like it's not like it's not like we can point we, it's not like we can we can um look at this study and be like oh gene l68y9 is the alcoholism gene it's not really mm -hmm. it's not as clean as that it's a constellation of different genes that work together and also genetic mutations sort of adjacent to those primary genes that sort of work together that when you look at them across a population of a sample of like 30,000 people and you sort of cross-reference like these genes and sort of genetic mutations with problematic drinking that's self-reported in this this sample of 30,000 people as a result of like pretty complicated statistical analysis that I can't really get into here you see it's pretty much inarguable that these genes have been passed down from these people's parents and are implicated not only in the disease of of alcoholism and people can quibble about the word disease but like that's it's whatever but like those are clearly implicated in the disease of alcoholism but not only are they implicated in having alcoholism they're implicated in certain personality structures that uphold alcoholism 
right? So an inability to it's like, I don't know, it could be like high neuroticism, which is like people throw that, that word around a lot, but it, you know, it really means something. You'd be highly neurotic. You could have, um, um, uh, there's, there's really specific measures that we have of impulsivity, which is what mm. I study. And so there's, mm. there's specific analyses that you can do on a given person. You can put them through these cognitive tests, which is what I do. And, you know, it'll be like 144 questions. And as a result of get, going through these 144 questions, off the back end of that survey, I can do a bunch of math and sort of graph out these, these, these things called indifference points, blah, blah, blah. That basically makes me able to come up with a number. It's just a number between zero and one that represents the extent to which that person is unable to um, inhibit their own behavior, how impulsive that person is. So we can predict or understand with a fair bit of reliability how impulsive is somebody. And what they find with people, people who have the disease of alcoholism or addiction or whatever you want to call it, are what they call, in my field, we call them high discounters, which mm. is a fan, it's a high discounters, which is just a really fancy way of saying the farther away that a reward gets from somebody on a timeline, the less important it is. Very simple. It's just, it's like, um, it's like a piece of cake right now means a lot to me. My favorite piece of cake. You're like, dude, you're going to have it in five minutes. It's going to be unbelievable. I'm like, oh shit. Okay. That's really, <laughs> that's really salient motivational cue for me. I'm like, oh damn, I can have it right now. But the moment that you say, oh, that piece of cake, actually, it's not going to be here till next week. I discount the subjective value of that piece of cake exponentially based on how far away from me it is. So I don't value it the farther away from me it gets. And how that plays into recovery is if, if um, like, for example, if, if I'm on heroin and I have this idea in my mind of, like for me, back in the day, I had this idea of like, man, if I could get sober, this life that's out here in the future, this life, I really, really want it, but it's kind of fuzzy and granular because it's like pretty far away. Man, if I could get that life, that would be on some level, I want it so badly, but because it's off here in an abstract distant future, and it's say a year from now, well, if I got sober and I got a year of sobriety, a year from now, my life would be amazing. So what's going to be more salient of a motivational cue for me? Is it going to be um, this abstract potential maybe life I could have a year from now? Or is it the dope man texted me five minutes ago? Mm. Right? Mm. Or, or I'm walking down the street thinking about this abstract life that I could have a year from now if I could just stay sober. And I walk down the street and I walk past a Woolworths and I look inside and there's a sale on Jack Daniels. Because that Jack Daniels is right now. And this mm. life that I want is out here. And so people that have the genetic predisposition for alcoholism and addiction discount the far away things far more steeply than people that mm. don't have alcoholism. Does that, does that mm. sort of make sense? Sorry, that was like a bit it, of a rant. It, yeah. No, that was unbelievable. I was, yeah. yes, I'm just hanging on every word that you're saying right now, Aaron. 
can does that then play into relapse and and how yeah. because i imagine you know because some people are chronic relapses and then other people just seem to go into treatment and get it first time how does that then play out yeah i mean it plays perfectly into the hands of the disease i mean it's mm. perfect it's perfect it's like so one of the things that one of the reasons i was admitted to this phd program is because i had this idea of past discounting Right. So it's pretty easy to see, oh, you know, this recovery life that I want is um, far away. And so I'm discounting the value of that as soon as I get a more immediate stimulus. Like I, there's alcohol right here right now or there's this life that I could have way, you know, a year from now. I'm discounting a future outcome. Right. Which makes it easy for me to drink. Right. But the other thing, too, is is there's this idea of past discounting, how I discount the past. And then there's this area in the middle. So like last year, my, my, um, my best friend uh, relapsed and died like two weeks before mm. his 10 year sober, sober birthday. So I'm my so friend sorry, is, Aaron. no, it's okay. Mm. It's okay. And um, I mean, it's not okay, but I've, done that work to to mm. heal that and he was almost 10 years sober and he was a fucking genius he was in medical school he was a fourth year medical student summa cum laude in biomedicine at northern arizona university he was the top of his class at at a universe a different university in arizona where he was a medical student he was just about to be a doctor but he stopped doing the things that we need to do in order to maintain. He let the, the work overshadow the stuff. And so what so fascinating, not at the time, it was just grief with his family. It was just grief. It was just like, holy shit. We never thought in a million years we'd be at this funeral right now, you know? Mm. Um, but what, when I look at his relapse, I was getting ready to go to graduate school when he died. And I was thinking about how we discount future positive outcomes and then how also we discount negative outcomes and how that, that, um, that stimulus that's right here. Like if I'm in a vulnerable spot and I, and I walk and I see um, alcohol and I'm in a vulnerable spot, I discount the future good things even more steeply and I discount the previous bad things even more steeply. Meaning mm. that I, if I'm 10 years in recovery, I have, prior to getting sober, I have 10 years of evidence of the nightmare fuel that was my life for 10 years before I got sober, how bad it was. Those are evidentiary like memory stores of, oh, 10 years before getting sober, it was bad, 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 bad. I have those memories stored up here somewhere. And then I have 10 years of recovery that's good, 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 good. And I have those memories stored up here. And then, so it's like I'm held, I'm sort of hanging together by those, both of those negative past memories and those positive memories of, of my recovery so far. They're sort of hanging together in my mind. And then as soon as I'm not doing the things that I need to do to maintain my spiritual fitness, all of a sudden, you know, just a dope man walks up to me at the bus station, he says, do you want some heroin? And my friend goes, yeah. 
Yeah, I do. So it's the mm-hmm. moment that if I if my spiritual immune system is down and I'm presented with an opportunity to relapse, what happens is both of those memory stores, the positive ones from recovery so far and the negative ones from previous to recovery are literally not accessible to me in my mind. I can't reach into them to pull from them and keep me safe because something about being spiritually unfit and then being in the in in the proximity of whatever my drug of choice is, something about that, which I, I honestly don't understand how it works yet. That's why I'm doing a PhD. Something about that makes those memories not accessible to me. And then all of a sudden you drink, you wake up from drinking, and you are none the wise. Your parents are like, how the hell did this happen? And you're like, dude, I wish I knew. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you for explaining that, Aaron. And I suppose what I'm thinking here is that's why you see people in 12-step fellowships with decades of sobriety and they're still mm-hmm. there. I remember mm-hmm. in the beginning I'd be like, why Why are you still here? Like, cause, yeah. you know, this must not work, but it's yeah. the opposite, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's that reminder. No. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the weird thing about this disease is no matter how, no matter how long you have it, I will forget that I have it. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. It's mm. horrifying. And it's the only disease that will tell you that you don't have it. Right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. That really sets it apart. Right? Yeah, it really does. Mm. Hey, Aaron, you're also starting work on psychedelic science for severe addiction, aren't you? Can you tell me what are your thoughts on medically assisted psychedelic treatment? Because we're just starting it here in Australia now. Oh, really? Oh, great. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, I can share my thoughts, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty new into that. Mm. So like, I'm, I'm just a, I'm a second year PhD student. So I'm, it's funny. We have we have a lab. Um, we, we have a lab here that does um, psilocybin re- research with um, veterans with, um, I think they have severe math addiction. Excuse mm-hmm. me. And um, so, so we have that going on. And I'm like, just now, it's like, like elbowing my way into that. And I might be doing a, um, a supplementary project within that study the psilocybin study. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's weird, you know, because obviously I'm sober and I have no, I've taken psychedelics a lot in my life, you know, before I got sober. And so I don't have like my interest in that area. I'm not interested in the psychedelics per se. Like I'm not interested so much in the substances themselves as I'm interested in the um, the profound mystical and psychological experiences that people have as a result of those things. And so like one of the things that we know about psychedelic science is that one of the most, um, one of the most, there's this guy named Roland Griffiths who was basically the, the godfather of all psychedelic science. He's at Johns Hopkins. And, um, 
I encourage anybody who's listening, just go listen to anything he's ever said and read. And he's brilliant. And he has these studies, I believe, from the early 2000s of Johns Hopkins, where he was the first dude in like 45 years or something, 40 years or something, to get a grant from the National Institute of Health to study psychedelics uh, at a federally funded university. And he did this, I think it was in the early 2000s. Anyway, the reason why I got into it is because if you look at that data from those early studies from Johns Hopkins, one of a lot, there's a lot of stuff I'm oversimplifying here, but one of the things that you find is that when people, alcoholics, these were alcoholics that were in this study, when alcoholics went through this study and took psilocybin mushrooms, the thing that was most predictive of whether or not they were able to stay sober in the future was the magnitude of the mystical experience that they had in the study. So it wasn't, oh, you know, I took a bunch of mushrooms and I saw like really cool colors and the sky was full of fluorescent lighting and now I don't want to drink anymore. What happens is they take the psilocybin as part of the study and they have a profound um experience of being in relation to a power greater than themselves is what happens Mm. and they have a fundamental shift in the way that they understand god themselves and their position in the universe and and also their position in relation to other people and so what happens is they take these psilocybin mushrooms and basically they have a profound spiritual experience and to the extent that they have that spiritual experience that like the dudes that take the psilocybin and go oh i had a 10 out of 10 mystical experience and then versus the dude who had a 3 out of 10 mystical experience the dude that had the 10 out of 10 mystical experience is way more likely to stay sober than the other dude does that wow. make sense yeah, it's making perfect sense. Yeah. So then, okay, I'm clear on that now. Yeah. What are your thoughts around something like ayahuasca? Yeah, honestly, I don't, I don't really know too much about ayahuasca. I think that um, a lot of, not all of them, but a lot of these psychedelic drugs are implicated in like similar regions in the brain and seem to be doing relatively similar things. I mean, like MDMA is different, of course, like, something like MDMA doesn't really work quite the same as something like psilocybin. But um, yeah, I would imagine ayahuasca acts on a lot of the same receptors in the brain. And uh, in terms of what that means for people in recovery, you know, I don't have a good answer for that. You know, I think Mm. I will say this. One thing I've learned over the years is that if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. And if some shortcut mm-hmm. seems like, if there's a shortcut that seems like it's the promised way, that's going to that's gonna cut my work in half so that I don't have to do the hard yards of whatever it is that I'm trying to get to, that shortcut is to be, a, to be looked upon with caution. Mm-hmm. That whatever that shortcut is. And so I do not advocate for people in recovery being like, 
yo, I've got 90 days. I'm going to go to Peru and take ayahuasca. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, cause I've met dudes and, and women that have said that to me with, mm, mm. you know, six weeks of sobriety. It's like, like, no, no, no. Just like learn your zip code and like, and like go to therapy <laughs> and you know what I mean? And like, like yeah. there's dude, it's like, dude, there's, you might not need that. You might not need mm. that. You could be like me. I had a profound mystical experience when I was in the hospital and it was, I mean, I had one of those like burning bush, you know, skies opening up before me, mystical experiences when I was in the hospital and mm. I have never drank again after that happened to me. And so these things are spontaneous and until psychedelics, they were spontaneous and you couldn't predict mm. when they were going to happen. But there are things that we can do in recovery that make it more likely that those things are going to happen and that not everyone's going to have a burning bush, but like there are things that we can do in recovery that bring us to a new understanding of what it means to be in relationship with some sort of higher power. And that is sufficient for most people mm. to have a beautiful life, to not have to drink or use drugs ever again. It's been sufficient for me. And so mm. I'm really more interested in the psychedelic science of like the harder cases, right? So these people that we're studying are, are, at, they're at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, they're really the worse off. And so desperate times call for def desperate measures. And we're like, let's see what we can do because these people are going to die. And so hmm. if this works and it has been working, if this works to bring about this mystical experience, then maybe that's the shoehorn that we need to get them into some sort of superordinate, like ethical, spiritual, whatever you want to call it. So downloading this new value system, which is, yeah. and sorry, I'm rambling, but I have to just finish this thought. Like the most interesting thing to me that I'm probably going to study at some point in my career. And what I don't understand is like why a genetically, like a, a, a genetic neurological metabolic based disease, why the, and an answer to a disease like that, that's so biological, why would a moral and spiritual solution work for that? Why mm. would that work? Because in the last 13 years of my recovery, I have done zero work to try to think about how do I not drink alcohol anymore? I don't think about that. I think about how to have an ethical and spiritual code that makes me a good man that puts me in touch with whatever this thing that people have called God. That's what I do. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I don't drink and I don't have to take pills. I don't have to wire something up to my brain. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. It's like the most mm -hmm. interesting thing. I can't wait for you to do that research. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll be yeah. so ready to, ready to read it. Yeah. So then in its simplest form, Aaron, we're coming to the end of this conversation. I feel yeah. like I could talk to you for hours, but I'm mindful of the time. Yeah. In its simplest form, I've got two questions left. What are the things that you do daily that maintain your spiritual fitness? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty simple. You know, I, I sit I sit out here in my little forest and I, you know, I read, man. I, I, um, I, 
I pay attention to the mystics that have gone before me, really. You know, I, I think about who are the men and women that have gone before me that have changed hearts and minds and left a trail of doing so, left evidence of doing so. A lot of times it's published, right? So like I've been reading a lot of Joseph Campbell and I've been reading um, I've been reading a lot of like, you know, Marcus Aurelius and stuff. And I've been reading uh, Dag Hammarskjöld's diary, which is this whole really interesting thing. And um, I just look to people that are further down the golden path than I am. And I try to glean what wisdom I can from what they've left behind. And, um, and then, yeah, I meditate and I pray. And, you know, most importantly, like before I'm sit on this chair out here and I just think every morning about like every single thing that's in my life right now is absolute bonus points is I am completely overpaid. You know what I mean? And so before I start each day, I start complaining and I start, because I'm so scared all the time and I complain all the time. I just try to think about like, I'm so lucky for my partner. I'm so lucky for my house. I'm so lucky that I'm alive right now and I get to have this life right now. And I just try to like, really, I guess it's gratitude, but yeah, Mm. I try to like think about that each morning Mm. from like a deeper, a deeper place. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Aaron, we have a closing tradition. It is one final question that I'd love to ask you now. Cool. Tell me, what are your three non-negotiables that Mm. allow you to live your life today? Happy, joyous, and free. Yeah. I think three non-negotiables is, um, prayer is, not negotiable and it reminds me of that this Soren Kierkegaard quote which is um, praying doesn't change God's mind it changes the mind of the one who prays and so mm. I think about that and so yeah prayer um, I have uh, like recovery meetings and fellowships that I attend constantly um, and then I think the last non-negotiable is basically I just, I have to keep it real. Like I can't act better than I am. Meaning if I'm not doing okay, which plenty of times I'm super not okay. And I'm really stressed. I have to go to somebody and be like, dude, like I'm in so much pain and I need help. And I think that that's, Mm. that's probably the linchpin really is just keeping it real basically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, which ties in so perfectly to the overarching theme of this podcast, which is just stepping out from behind the smile and, you know, living an authentic life and knowing that it's okay to do so. Yeah. Hey, Aaron, this has been freaking awesome and I've loved every single second. I can't thank you enough for giving your time so generously here today. We say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you for being a part of this mission and being here with me today. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ash. Thanks, Aaron.